Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. He's posted wins over Tsitsipas, Gofan, Raonic, and Bautista Agu, and he's been across the net from nearly every man on tour. As a kid, he moved from America to Argentina, where he practiced with Schwartzman and Pella. And after a solid junior career, he was the only American to be part of the first next-gen group that included Chorich, Shapovalov, Kachanov, and Medvedev. 2018, he was 21 years old and number 48 in the world, and then injury struck. Now, after successful surgery and a year on the DL, he's about to come back. Rhode Island's finest, Jared Donaldson, tells us how getting a wild card into the qualities of the U.S. Open jump-started his career. He offers an inside look into how players deal with injury on tour. And he tells us why his injury may actually allow him to improve other things in his game when he returns. We met up with Jared at his home, far away from the action of the tour, yet always a short drive to the USTA Training Center in Carson. First of all, we're in Irvine, California, at none other than Jared Donaldson's home, former World 48, and uh, by far the greatest tennis player on the men's side to come out of Rhode Island. Jared Donaldson, my man, it's so good to see you. Good to see you. I cringe when people ask me who I'm a fan of, but I've kept my eye on you from the time I started hearing about you because I am indeed a Rhode Islander as well, and there's very few of us, so... (laughs) We're like, That's the truth. Yeah, we're proud of you. And and uh, do you spend? Do you ever kick it back there? Do you ever go back? Yeah, I go back as often as I can. You know what I mean. Obviously, with travel, when when you're playing a lot, you're a citizen of the world, but you have no hometown really. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you spend so much time on the road. Yeah. And but I go back. I went. I go back for Christmas most times. Um, you're, by the way, I have to tell you, you're from, I'm not going to get like all Rhode Island bananas on this show because I could, <laughs> but I don't want to do that. But I, there was a, a famous radio host named Salty Brine and mm-hmm. he would announce the school closings. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he would you'd be like, no school. And you're from a place where it never was school. Whenever it snowed, you nope. got the most snow. Foster the Gloucester. Glo- exactly right. Yeah. The guy would yell, no school, Foster Gloucester. I remember that. I got to tell you, you're the only person I ever <laughs> have met from Foster Gloucester. Foster, and it's yeah. two places. Yeah. That's it, where you're from. You're from yeah, Chapache. I'm from Chapache. The and fact Foster. that you're a professional anything from up there is incredible. I never met one person <laughs> from up there. <laughs> well, here, here, here I am. I am the first. Uh, hopefully, I'm doing a Foster Gloucester proud. And you're exactly right. No school Foster <laughs> Gloucester. I would wake up every time it was snowing, even if it was the littlest amount. No school Foster Gloucester. No school. No school. No school. If you, like the kids in Gloucester, have no school at the first sign of precipitation, maybe you want to throw a party. And if you want the party to draw all the cool kids, I can think of no one better to set the vibe than my man Stretch Armstrong. He plays the biggest parties all across the land. He also hits a great ball. He has agreed to come on as a DJ for one very lucky Patreon subscriber. Along the way, that subscriber gets the pleasure of joining the Under Review family and helping to support Under Review. Stretch's set is just one of many great perks that can be found on our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. 
and everyone who signs up gets access to the, the Evgeny Kofelnikov interview that I recorded a couple weeks ago at the Tennis Hall of Fame. That's patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. We sincerely appreciate it. Let's get back to school and learn some things from Jared Donaldson. We do a five-set format. Uh-huh. This is our first set. We call it the off-the-court report. Okay. You are uh, officially on the mend. I am on the mend. We actually saw Jan Michael mm-hmm. in January, and I asked about you, and he said that you had had, like, chronic tendinosis of the yeah. knee. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you tell us? Sure. I mean, you know, last year I felt like I had a really... I was playing really well, and I had some... I was really making good improvements and so forth, and then I was. it was during the grass at Wimbledon, probably the Saturday before the tournament started. So it was actually the practice where every player gets an hour on the grass court, but only an hour, so you have to hit with another player and so forth. And, and, it's, and it's not at, oh, it's at, Wim, cause there's, at Wimbledon? Because there's, there's the... Um, Orangi is where everybody. Yeah, you're not talking about Orangi. No, no, no. I'm talking about every every player gets one hour on the official Wimbledon course See, and so forth. A lot of the listeners may not know this, yep. but generally speaking, all the practice that happens mm-hmm. during Wimbledon happens at Orangi, yep. which is literally just sort of you just kind of walk down the path. Exactly. But to get on the official Wimbledon court, you don't get much time. You get one hour. Everybody gets one hour, and it's split with another player, so you have to. And then the tricky thing is, too, also when you're trying to book practice, finding another player who already hasn't used their hour or, have, or hasn't allocated their hour to another player. So I remember I was, I was practicing, I was playing a, you know, a practice set, and I was walking on the back. I just remember, man, my knee is just killing me. I just, like, it was just really, um, it felt inflamed, and I just thought, wow, it is really bothering me. I don't remember a movement I did. I just remember walking on the back just thinking, wow, it really hurts. And then the next day I came out and it felt okay. I mean, I still felt some pain. I played my first round and I won. And I felt, the first set I didn't really feel it. Second set I felt it a little bit more. Third set I felt it, you know, even a little bit more than that to where it was becoming, you know, painful. And I got through, I won the first round. And then, I, you know, the Tuesday, because um, so I think I played my first match Monday. Who'd you play? I played uh, Jaziri, Malik Jaziri. Malik and Jaziri. I, I, won, uh, I won the first round. And then I remember practicing, whether I played Monday or Tuesday, I don't remember which, but anyway, so then I was practicing my, in between the, the day, on my day off, and I was practicing with Seppi, and I thought, my God, my knee is killing me. I mean, I could, I could barely practice. And, uh, but I just thought, I'd, kinda ha- I'd always kind of had some sort of inflammation in the knee, every once in a while, not a big deal. So I just thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I practice for 30 Work minutes. through it. Take the night off, and it'll be fine tomorrow. So I was playing Tsitsipas, Sitsi and um, I lost the first two sets, and my knee was kind of bothering me, and I kind of thought, well, you know, should I pull out, should I not? I thought, you know what, I'll, I may only have one set left. I'm going to play through it. I don't want to pull out. It's not a big deal. Um, because I'd had, I'd, you know, every, every player, there's always a fine line as a player, at least in my, you know, in my experience, between feeling like you're being a baby and kind of you know, saying I can play, th- or playing through it and, and, and feel like you're giving it your all. You know, I think it's kind of a tough, a tough line to balance. So I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play through it and see what happens. I may only have a set left anyways. And I was getting, you know, kind of routined up, at that, up until that point. Um, I ended up winning the third set. <laughs> and then, you know, through every, like I had train, like trainers come out, tape up my knee, the, knee, the, my, the taping wasn't really worked. And then I had another tape job in the, in the third set. And it was like, my entire knee was taped. And at that point, I felt my leg kind of lose blood flow, so it was starting to cramp. 
And to make a long story short, I ended up losing in five sets, and that, that was a killer match to lose because I came back from two sets to love down, won the next two sets, and in between I actually had a rain delay. So, and, you know, we actually played the next day also, it carried over to the next day. I was up a break in the fifth, ended up losing it, which was, you know, really devastating, or, you know, really upsetting because I thought that I really, it was one of those matches where you really think you can win and still haunts me to this day, but c'est la vie. Um, Just hearing this story is <laughs> making my stomach like... No, it's, it's but I think uh, it, it's also, I think there's there's always a... But so hang on, so, yeah. so hang on, so you so you lose the match, you lose to yeah. Sitsipas of yeah. all people, man. Up a break in the fifth, yeah. and your knee is... So I would say the knee was bothering me for four and a half sets. I mean, it was painful, but not to where I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna miss the next you know, eight months or the next year and a half because I need to have something done. I just thought, whatever, I'll take a week off or something, we'll see how it feels. But um, it, but the, the final set and a half, it, it truly didn't bother me. Once I got back from the rain delay, it truly didn't bother me. I, had, I was on all sorts of you know, medication and <laughs> yeah. all, all the adrenaline. I really thought this was gonna be a really great you know, I was really gonna, I thought I was gonna win. It was one of those matches where you just believe you're gonna win. And I believed it all the way up until I, I finally lost the last point. And then I come back to California and I was supposed to play Atlanta. I wasn't ready to get in time for Atlanta. So it was two weeks off, not really playing. Do you yep. get a diagnosis? Do you obviously I got, see I a got doctor? It, yeah, I went and saw a doctor. And what'd they tell I got you? an ultrasound and an MRI. And there was some calcification of my knee. But the doctor said, look, if we ultrasounded everybody's knee and MRI'd everybody's knee, every, it would look about the same to probably every other tennis player. You feel a little bit of pain. You have chronic tendinosis, which is um, basically micro tears of the tendon. If you do some rehab and you take some rest, I think it's going to get better. So great, you know, I'm just going to take a couple of weeks off. And it did, it got better, and I was able to play through it. I was on a lot of anti-inflammatory, so that might have masked it, some topical and oral. And I didn't play for basically two and a half weeks. And then I, I played two days before I left for Washington. And I thought, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit better. It's gonna improve as I play through it. Even if I'm not 100% for Washington, I'll play into my rhythm for the summer hard course, right? Because that's obviously, that's obviously a great time for an American player. You're, you you want to play at yeah, the home play on the harm on the hard court and that's in your United bread States. and butter. Yeah, and it's my best surface, and I had I've done really well every single hard court uh, since I turned pro. That's kind of where you make your move. Exactly. So what happened? And I go to Washington, and it feels great actually, like no pain really. And I win my first round, um, and then I play Sitsi Pass again in the second round, and this time again I have match points on him in a third set. Oh I was, come on! Yeah, I was a 40, 15 on my serve, 5, 4, and I lose, 7, 5 in the third. So it was kind of, a, it was a bummer, but for me, it, w it was a bummer, and I really, again, feel like I, sh I had I had opportunities in that match. Obviously, when you have two match points on your own serve, that's when you feel as though got away. And, um, and then, so then I go to Toronto. Tennis is rough, man. <laughs> no, tennis is rough. It's, it's, it can be brutal. Tennis but, is rough. But at that point, I'm thinking, you know what? I just had a really good tournament, feeling like I didn't have the best preparation, so I'm gonna, have a, I'm gonna you know, really have a good, good, good summer. Get to Toronto, first day of practice, two days later, my knee starts hurting. And then the next day, my knee starts start hurting a little bit more. Sunday, it starts hurting a little bit more. And then Monday, I'm playing Benoit Paire, and it was really bothering me to where I knew, okay, this is gonna be an issue. Finished the match. I ended up losing, and basically from that point on, I've been trying to 
get, I had been trying to get my, my pain tolerable. My pain had finally gotten tolerable about eight, you know, about pro, since uh, a little bit before um, Del Rey. And, but finally, kind of after Miami, I knew that my training wasn't as, as hard as it needed to be um, just because I, I couldn't do certain things You're that I- You're managing yeah, the injury. I manage, I'm managing the injury, injury exactly right. I'm not able to put everything I can into training. I told my, my dad, I said, Dad, look, I, I want to figure, I want to explore other options because right now it's not rewarding for me to go out and train when I feel like I'm only doing about 70% of what I need to. It's just frust- it's well, frustrating. You end up off the tour when you just stay managing the injury. Exactly. You can't win matches. Exactly. You can't really do that. Exactly. I felt like, you know, I'm, these, guys are, I, these guys are so good already. And if I feel like if I can't put in 100% of what I need to, I'm not going to be competitive anyway, so I need to figure something else out. You have to be able to trust your knee. And then... Um, surgery. Sur- and then I got surgery, which uh, which wasn't... It wasn't easy to find... Like, everybody's first option, every doctor I talked to, it was not surgery. Some had different... They didn't... They weren't a fan of me having surgery because I think it's obviously a, a, not a, a super invasive procedure, but... Everybody wanted, you know, you need more rehab. You need a little bit, try to have more rehab because the thinking goes is if your quad isn't firing um, effectively or as much as it needs to, you know, if it's not activating right, that puts undue strain on your tendon, which will cause tendonitis or tendinosis because the tendon is overworking. And, you know, I said, look, I've tried rehab for eight months. It's not really improving. Do I want to? I can't waste another couple months hoping on rehab. So then finally I had surgery and... You know, I saw for the post-op a couple, you know, a week ago, the doctor said, it looks great. Everyone I'm talking to says it looks great. My physio thinks, thinks it looks great. And the doctor said, you know, this might be might have been just exactly what you needed. So I'm- Now, here. where did you- um, At uh, Stanford in uh, San Francisco. So when you are a pro athlete, you don't just shoot down to your like local hospital, <laughs> man. You got to go to the top level- well, doctors. I was recommended by this doctor from my agent and he had done some other- Who's clients, your agent? Kelly Wolf. So Kelly knows yeah. what's up, man. She's Kelly Wolf has been in the game for Ever. thirty years <laughs> exactly. now, man. She's uh, pro serve, but now you guys—that's advantage. No, no, Octagon, no. Octagon now, right, right, right. Kelly Wolf from Octagon, longtime agent. So she knew exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. So you're you're coming back in 2020. That's what I'm hoping for. Go to Australia, mm-hmm. play Adelaide. Yeah, probably play a couple challengers to to warm up, and then play the Australian Open and and see and see how the year goes and. You know, I'm, I'm just looking forward to getting back to competing and, and doing everything I can to be 100% again. Let's move into our second set. Mm-hmm. We call this the On the Court Report. Now, yep. since you're not on the court, yep. but I know you're always looking at the rankings and the points and, and you got to keep your eye on some things in general. Let's start with the women, actually. Um, what have your impressions been of this year? I mean, I, I honestly could not tell you. I've been fairly detached from tennis. So you don't really keep an eye on it because um, you're so in it. You know, I, I, per, I feel like, you know, maybe I, maybe I could watch more, but I don't really have any, any ambition to watch. You know, I feel maybe a little bit of it is subconsciously. I, I wish I was there you're and depressed. competing. It makes you depressed. <laughs> I don't know if it makes me depressed, but I just feel as though I can focus on kind of other things and not be all consumed. I think it can be healthy to kind of take a step back. And personally, I've had my biggest improvements and, and growth when I've taken a step back. Obviously, I'm very aware of my game and I think of it all the time, but, you know, to watch it all, all the time, you know, when I'm not there, it's kind of, it can be, 
draining. Let me ask. But you, I obviously know all the players. But hang on a second. So let me ask you. For example, Bianca Andreescu. Do you know her? I know that she won Indian Wells, but I don't know her personally. You don't know no. her, no, because no. um, she tore her shoulder. Mm-hmm. I mean, she played forty matches in three months, and sure, I think injuries are a part of the sport. Um, I played a lot of tournaments. I practiced a real lot. I don't think that that's what caused my my knee. I don't know what caused her shoulder. Maybe it was sure. a lot of playing, Overplay. but I think that yeah, I don't think that um, you know injuries are kind of binary. I think some people are more exposed to them than others. Um, and look, I mean, part of the sport is trying to be as healthy as you can. That's why you see a lot of players, including myself, travel around with a full-time physio. So you do as much as you can, but I can only speak for myself with my knee, but everybody I've talked to said, look, you know, your knee looks about as healthy or as every other, pl- obviously you have symptoms of um, tendinosis, but if you, if you looked at every tennis player's, every athlete's knee, they would have symptoms of tendinosis. You just experience pain. And we, and you know, we just, we, as the medical community, we can't tell you why that is, but obviously your pain is a symptom and you, that needs to be treated. So I, I think that sometimes in injuries, it, it's called the practice of medicine for a reason. You know, it's sometimes I think a little bit more of an art than a science and we don't know everything, but you do every, the best you can to try to, to make yourself as healthy as possible. Um, you mentioned that you've lost two tough matches against uh, Sitsipas. Yeah. What's it feel like to play him? I mean, he's young, too. Yeah, he's young. He's 20, 19. He's a couple years younger than myself. He's good, huh? He's good. I, I personally, you know, I'm, and this isn't a, a criticism. I, I was surprised that he's kind of jumped as fast as he did. Um, and I think, and with that all being said, I think that, that, that he is a really good player. He serves phenomenally, first of all. And he, he comes to net well. I remember I played him at Wimbledon, and I and I saw in the first round, and even when I played him, um, um, the second t- or the second uh, third time in Washington, because I played him three times, and I thought, wow, he comes to net a lot. And sometimes I thought kind of as a suicide attempt, but it was effective. And he volleyed volleyed extremely well, serves extremely well. When I played him, I thought his biggest weakness was his return. Um, and I I do feel as though kind of my game matched up pretty well to his. I felt I, one of the one of my stronger suits is my return. Um, so By I, far, that's your strong yeah. suit. So I think that, you know, getting into points, I like to get into rallies, and I think that that's why we kind of had really good battles. But I played him when he was 120 in the world, like eight, 18 or 19, um, two years ago in uh, Chengdu, and I didn't know who he was. I knew he was a good junior, and I'd seen him around a couple times, but I was really impressed with how good he was. I thought his one hand back in normally, especially for a lot of young players, that's a liability. It was a really strong shot. I felt actually at the time that it was better than his forehand. And now I think he opens the, the court up so well and he has great accuracy and he takes the ball early, which I think not, you know, that's something that's subtle, but really, really impactful when you have a player who can open up the court, hit the ball big and, and, and take it early, which sometimes you feel, you feel players let the ball come up and come down and gives you more time. Talk about opening up the mm-hmm. court. When you say that, you mean, first of all, that he's able to move the ball down the line to op- open up the court, I, you know, put the ball, obviously it's tough to do down the line, but his down the lines are really, are a great shot, which is why, and his down lines are so effective because when I talk about open up the court, I usually mean, or theoretically I'm saying, if he hits the ball cross court, he gets the ball through the singles line at some point during the sh- during the during the rally. Pull the opponent pull off the, the court. court. Yeah, to where they they get the opponent in the in the far end of the corner 
or into the doubles alley or past it. He does that, he does that extremely well on the cross courts, inside outs, and even on some inside ends. And then players who do that, they're down the lines are so effective because they make the court so big to cover. And he does that really well. And to be honest, that's why he's, you know, top 10 in the world right now because all the top 10 guys do that extremely well. But I think what maybe separates him, separates him and I haven't played him in over a year, but I think that probably what he does so well and maybe what separates him is his ability to take the ball early. When you takes can take, time away. It takes time away and that just makes it that much more effective because normally I think there's three levels. There's you take the ball early, which is an extremely important skill, but then you have to develop the accuracy or you develop the accuracy and then the ability to take the ball early. And they're, they, 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 they're, um, they mesh well together, that skill, and that the best players take the ball early and they have great accuracy where usually the lower and lower ranked you get, they either maybe have one or the other skill and normally it's really good accuracy not taking the ball early. I think taking the ball early is what, is what the great players do and it's hard to do. Um. Who's another example of someone that you've played mm -hmm. that's kind of alive and amplified right now? I mean, I, I know you have a great win sure. against GoFam, but you've played yeah. everybody. So who else do you like that's... I mean, everybody's kind of... Obviously, I don't mean to slight Rafa, Federer, Djokovic. No, no, we don't, we don't need and, but to. But everybody knows yeah, those I don't guys need, are We know all about yeah. them, man. <laughs> who, else, who else is there that... I think that... Um, I thought this for a while, but I thought uh, Kachanov was really impressive. Great serve. Um, and by the way, we're at the back end of the French now, and Kachanov is still there, and nobody was talking about him. He had, like, a very lousy year. Yeah, and that can happen. I mean, you know, I think that we've been, as tennis fans or as, you know, as people who follow the sport, we've been so spoiled with Federer, Djokovic, Murray, Rafa, always getting to the back, the, like, the semis, finals, winning tournaments. And tennis, traditionally, it hasn't been, like, that, you know, I think that because the courts have kind of become so similar, the speeds, and there's not a whole lot that really separates Wimbledon from the French Open. They're pretty similar surfaces, you know what I mean? So the game is all, be, everyone has a similar style. Um, but even back in the 90s and early 2000s, before, every, you know, these three guys or four guys were kind of dominating the game, it was a little bit more open, you know? People had, there were still losses that happened early in the tournament, um, and, you know, certain guys, certain guys are more vulnerable. And I think as tennis, we've been kind of spoiled. It, and that's not, yeah. you know, it might not be in the future where you have Federer, a, a type of tandem with Federer, Rafa, Djokovic, uh, Murray, uh, Stan, you know, all these players getting to the second week all the time. Delpo, and Delpo Nishikori. Nishikori. You know, it, it might be where there will be, you know, 10 guys who win five slams over the next decade. It'll it, be more it like the women. Be. Or it might not be, or maybe there will be a, a, a hand, a select, like maybe Zverev will become the next Djokovic, Federer, you know, what have you. But it's too early to tell, and I think that that's kind of the bottom line. People in tennis, it's there's, it's, you know, I coming up through juniors, everyone, every, I, I mean, all those players. It was really interesting to think back to when I made the uh, next gen finals that I had known most of those players since they were 12 years old. We had all played Orange Bowl together, or Eddie Herr, and what have you, so I, I've who known is, about who them. Who was there that year? Uh, at First next year, gen. next gen, yeah. Myself, Medvedev, Kachanov, Rublev, uh, John Luigi Quincy, who you know obviously hasn't maybe had the professional career so far, but I've known 
the, the name John Luigi Quincy since I was eight years old. He was the best player. I think every junior my age knew who John, John Luigi was. John Luigi Quincy, uh, t 10 years ago, man, I did a show the Nike Junior Tour Masters, yeah. and he was this lefty Italian. Yeah. This guy has been talked about yeah. for a million years as the guy, and he's yep. about 400 in the world. Yeah, I mean, and he got a wild card into that next gen tournament, yeah. and no one could believe he had got that that wild card because his ranking was so low. But this guy was thought yeah. to be a guy that you were going to see. Uh, and I thought it was kind of fitting that actually that he he was there with us because he was a part of my generation as a junior, you know what I mean? John Luigi Quincy. And um, it, uh, Chung, who I think won Orange Bowl when I was 12, the year that I'm talking about. And he's been hurt. And he's, you know, obviously had injury issues. Um, and I'm pro probably forgetting, I'm forgetting one, oh, Shapovalov, who's a little bit younger than than all of us, I think, a few years. But obviously he was a great junior too, so. So you came up with all those guys. You know, I, th I think that it was, um, I thought I thought that the whole group it was you know obviously an honor to be a part of it, but I thought it was all we, everybody there. It was fitting that everyone was there because there was nobody who I was surprised that was there. Well, that's, and there are other players who are great that didn't make. That's it. the thing that there are things that's not that's not guaranteed that a great junior will become a great pro. Yeah. But one thing we do know is that quite often the best juniors do become the best pros. They sure. have the best. They have the best. They have significant careers. Or at least they're j good juniors, you know what I mean? Um, they're good juniors. Good juniors, you know? And so I thought that, that was that was really cool, but I think, and I think, but I think all those all those guys, oh, Quartz was also there, I, I didn't mention him, and he's a great player sure too, is. and all these guys are, are, are phenomenal, and I think, the other thing that I think that, you know, isn't, all of them are, there's not one player in that group who I think is, you know, all, all the young players, not one player I think of as lazy or you know got there solely on. I think they all work extremely hard, and I've seen it. And I think that you know tennis is a, it, for the next decade. There's a lot of really great young players that are so determined to be to be to be great and to win slams. And obviously Zverev wasn't at he was he could have been at the tournament. He, he was in the finals. He was in the, <laughs> the real ATP finals. But I don't mean to exclude him from the list. No, um, of course not. But, uh, but you know, obviously he's and he's obviously really motivated and plays great and all, all that. Jared Donaldson bullish on the next group coming through. Once Rafa, Joker, if, if, they, ever, <laughs> if they ever leave, you know, there's no guarantee because there's no guarantee they'll 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 ever leave you. They have to. Rafa's everyone only keeps thinking that oh, you know, they'll eventually fade. I mean, they're still you know. Young, I mean. Joker and Rafa's only 32, man. I know. You and guys are going to be dealing with that for a long time. For sure. I mean, it's certainly possible. Let's move into our third set. This is the part of the show where we talk about your career. First of all, you got to tell us, like, how do you come out of Rhode Island? Um, I, I mean, my sense is, is that you hit a lot of balls. You hit a lot of balls with Mario. Yeah. Tell us about how you got rolling. In tennis, is your father kind of got you going? It was actually, honest to God, it was it was kind of it was my parents, obviously, but it was myself who got who who got me into tennis. Um, so I don't know if you remember if you know the country club Kirk Bray. Of course. So my my parents were members at Kirk Bray. So every day and during the summer, we my 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 mom would bring my sister and, and I up to the pool and we would. Uh, Summers in Rhode Island, yeah. everybody. About twelve <laughs> weeks of outstanding fun. Kirk 100%. Bray Country Club. Shout out to Kirk Bray. They have a, they got a, they have a 
adequate golf course and a robust tennis and, and pool club. Yeah. And um, so my, I was four years old, and one day I just wandered over to the tennis courts, and they, they had clinics there. And I did that for about a week, and my mom saw that I took an interest in it. And then from there on, my parents just supported me the entire way. And as long as I was giving it my all, they kind of, you know, were... You just got giving, right into yeah, it. I Kirk got right Bray. into it. You started at Kirk Bray. Started at Kirkbray, and then it eventually led me to Mario when I was six. Mario Lama, well-known uh, junior coach in Rhode Island. Yep, and um, and then I I trained with him, and he's still obviously a really great friend. And, Is that right? Yep. Oh yeah, I speak to Mario all the time. I, I see him every time I go home. And I know you did a little bit of lessons with a guy that I practiced with, uh, Randy Osga. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I was six and seven, I'd be remiss not to mention him. I had to. I have to mention. No, him. I know. You know, Randy obviously was really great and another stepping stone in my tennis career. But and then when I was four, uh, thirteen, I moved down to Argentina for two years and a half. Now you got to explain that. Yeah. You're, so you're playing like, and and you and you like jump. You were like one of the top juniors around, and you like, I, I you you basically were going to school in Rhode Island. You were. I was homeschooled at that point. You did. You'd already got pulled yeah. out. Yeah. You're on the, that's the program. At some point you have to, if you're going to take a real shot at it, it seems like a lot of kids. I think so. Yeah. I think that that's, if you want to give yourself a real, real shot at it, obviously it's not, it, it, it might not be the rule, but I certainly think if it gives you the best opportunity to kind of really put your best foot forward. Now this part of the Argentina story mm-hmm. is, is, the, is certainly the most interesting to me regarding your development. Explain what you did. So I was 13 at the time. I just turned, I think I just turned 14 actually, or I was just turned 13, one sure. of the two, whatever. And I was playing Eddie Herr and I lost first round. Eddie Herr, the pretty much the, the biggest, um, most significant junior tournament in the world. Yep. And um, so I had played that and I'd lost first round and I felt my Mario and my dad both felt that playing in Rhode Island and in indoor tennis was it was a good thing but it was becoming kind of a, a detriment you to maxed me. out yeah and the reason for that was is obviously indoors hardcore faster surface it doesn't promote it it doesn't lend itself to playing with a lot of spin and and promote movement and that sort of stuff because it's so easy to kind of finish points quickly and and quickly with you know bigger kind of straighter, flatter ground strokes. I have to imagine you must have been jumping the 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 competition. Like who would you even practice with at some point? Like don't it, it that certainly that was part of it. I mean I did the best I we did the best I could. Mario had some guys who were in college that I hit with, the guys at Brown. Right, but right, right. Sometimes that makes sense. you play play with the college kids. But the, you know obviously they have class. It doesn't always work. It's scheduling. So I had a contact in Argentina. We sent three emails to three coaches down there. Um, a coach by the name of Pablo Bianchi, you know, emailed back. And he had gotten up to 280 in the world. And there were three other places I looked at at the time. Argentina, Spain, and um, Boletaris in uh, Florida. And the deciding factor for Argentina, there were two things. One, it was their summer. So I was, I was planning on going in January. So it was their summertime where everybody else, everywhere else it was winter, it was going to be cold. And the other was in Spain and in um, Boletari, my dad couldn't find a coach who, was, who had been better than about 700 in the world, and there weren't even that many. It doesn't mean that there, that there weren't there. He That's just who you were going to yeah, get. He just couldn't, he just couldn't f- 
see any others available or, or what have you. So, you know, we just, my dad decided, hey, we'll go down to Argentina and it'll coincide with the COSAT tournaments, which are really big, um, prestigious ITF tournaments um, and Explain South that. American COSAT. So it's a circuit of, of tournaments in South America. How do you spell that? C-O-S-A-T, I'm pretty sure. COSAT. No, yeah. I never heard of that. So there. This is some new information <laughs> right here. So there's a there's a series there's, of ITF yep. down there called yep. the COSA, and there's also the age groups for the 16s and 14s. And so the thinking was, okay, I'll go play in the I'll go play the 16s COSA while I'm training Argentina. So I'll be there for a month, and then I'll train on red clay for a month, and then I'll go play those tournaments, and then I'll go home. So it'll be about a three month trip. And I remember I got down there first day. And it was, the red clay was so slow. It was the first time I'd ever played on red clay. I told my dad, oh my goodness, I, just wanna, I feel like I just want to drop shot every single point because it's so slow. So it was a great, great tennis experience. You wanted to bail out of the points. I wanted to bail out of the points. Yeah, exactly right. And it was such a great tennis experience because I don't know, however, you know, if, the, if any listeners have ever been to Argentina or Buenos Aires for tennis, but it is the biggest tennis community in Buenos Aires. There's like something like 60 academies along a three-mile stretch, literally. The biggest tennis community in South America, you mean? It, I, yeah, if not so congregated in the world, literally. It's like a, a, for tennis training, players, really? it's like a mecca. Buenos and, Aires. Buenos Aires, yeah. Would Nalbandian just show up or Jose Luis Clerk just show up? Did you like learn about the Argentinian tennis tradition? For sure. I mean, that was what's so cool about Buenos Aires is that all the really great players train there who lived in Argentina. So when I trained at um, Parque Norte, which was run by Fabian Blangino, that was his academy, who coached um, Coria for a time. Um, Guillermo Coria. And also coached uh, Guido Pela. So at that academy, Guido Pela was training there. Um, Mateo Martinez, who I already referenced. Um, Diego Schwartzman. Um, so I did fitness with Diego all the time. Zabashos would train there quite frequently. So I've seen those guys. And the cool thing is, is like they were so open and so nice to me and it made it for such a great experience in tennis. I mean, you know, they, and, and they were great, they were great role models. You know, they were great. They trained really hard. I saw what they did in the gym from the time I was, work. yeah, 15, 16. And, and it was just, it was just a great tennis culture and atmosphere. And, and those guys work so hard, and, and I think that that's why you see them do so well today. So what was the name of the place you went to? So I originally, I went to uh, Tennis Point, which was uh, this guy, uh, Toto Sarundalo, had, Toto's not his, fir- not his first name, it was a nickname, yeah. but he had like a bunch of academies, so, and, but Pablo was my coach, because I had, because there, usually you go into the academy system at, for most um, American academies, where in Argentina, the coach that brings you in to the academy, they're responsible for drives it. The, yes. Drives the so, operation. So Pablo was my coach, and it was, it was great training. Just this is great sick. training. You came right from Rhode Island to Buenos Aires. Yeah, no, it was unbelievable and, training. And the USTA didn't like be like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You got to come back to America. No, no, it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything like that. You were that. doing your own they thing. They were supportive. You know, I was doing, and, you know, I think that, the, obviously, I think that some people get really upset with the with the USTA and, w- and what they do and so forth. I've honestly never had any contentions with the USTA. Oh. They promote what 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 they want to do in, in their program, and but they don't they don't force it upon you. It's there as an option, which I think is sometimes I don't think that there's a clear understanding of that. They 
they present it as an option. It's not us take it's us or the highway. There's there's never any of that. They're always supportive. They always want what's best for their players. Right, but continue on this. Sure. So you started playing. I got to hear more about yeah. this now. Were you just like knocking back like steaks every night? <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, of, like, there was a lot. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of red meat consumed. <laughs> and um, but you're like a kid playing tennis. Yeah. You must have been like having the time of your life. No, it was really great training, and I played those tournaments, and and every I I had improved so much that I stayed for an extra two months, and I felt in my when I came back home, I played some ITFs, and I did really well over the summer. You just got matched tough. I just got matched tough. I had improved a lot. My game had improved. I added spin. My movement got better. So then it just became logical that that was going to be my place of training. It sounds like this guy's a great coach, this guy. Yeah, no, Pablo is amazing guy. Just Where's that amazing. guy? You should get him up here, man. I, I, he has a family and stuff. He's so got a whole thing. He's got a whole thing down there. And he's it. doing well, and I still speak to him every now and again, but, but and he's so, a great guy. But so this guy really, it sounds like, helped you take a humongous, humongous step. step. Humongous step. Humongous step. And you stay down there until you turn pro? Till I was about 16 and a half. So I would come back for the winter and I would come back for the summer. So I did that for about two and a half years. And then I was 16 and a half years. I was 16 Wait, and no, a half. Wait, no, sorry. You'd yeah, go sure. in the winter, you go to Argentina? I would, yes. I would from go from American January, winter, yeah. Argentina. So for about January to May, I would go to South America. Yeah. And then I would come back to Rhode Island for the summer. And in the summer, I would bring back a coach named Alejandro Cohn. You brought a guy Pablo. with you, yes. and then you just started playing. And we, we, would, we would travel to different tournaments, and then I would go back to South America for the fall, end of the summer, fall, so from about uh, September to December, and come home for the holidays and so forth. So I did that for two, year, two, two years about. And then on my third time, my please third year run around. By the way, please tell me you speak Spanish. No, I don't. I missed that opportunity. I missed that opportunity. But these guys just all talking to you in English? I, they were talking to me in English, and... Obviously, I I, could, I probably could have done a better job. I did have a tutor and so forth, but I if I had re, if I would redone it, I would make a more of a concerted effort to sure. speak. But at the time, it didn't seem that important. I was there for tennis, you know. That was kind of my. You were thing. just trying to get into tennis. Right? And, and by the way, you got you you became a pro tennis player, man. Yeah, true. so that worked. It worked. <laughs> so amazing. So it's actually funny how the down how my my biggest peak then followed to the lowest valley because i was 15 just about to turn 16 and i went and i played two futures in venezuela and the first future i played i qualified and i drew the first seed so i was like really upset uh, you know happy that i won that i just qualified so i thought that was really cool yeah. and it was a guy um max Estevez, and i ended up he was about like 290 and i ended up winning the match in three sets I mean, just like crazy match. I mean, I was up like 5-1 in the third, and I was choking like crazy. It got back to 5-4. I probably had 20 match points, and I finally pulled it out. 20 match points. Literally 20 match points. I mean, I was choking like you could not believe it. I was so Terrified. nervous. Terrified. And then I won, and it was, you know, obviously I was really emotional because I thought, wow, this is awesome. You know, I you know, won a pro I, match. I, I have a 180 point. And so, and then I, I ended up losing in the quarterfinals of that tournament. So I won my next round, and then I went... And I played this. I, the second future I was going to play. I qualified again, and I had turned six. I was turning sixteen that week. And then I played Mateo Martinez, who at the time was top ten ITF first round, and actually trained at the same academy that I did. But this was I had moved to a different academy, and um, I ended up winning that match like seven six and a third. So it was a huge win for me. And then subsequently next round I lost six zero six zero to another to a seed. But he, you know he was good. But it was just you know a poor second round showing. 
So then I had four ATP points and I felt, wow, this is re I'm really, really playing well. This is gonna be a huge step for me. And I go to Eddie Hur and Orange Bowl and I lose first round, first round. And it was such a devastating experience because I felt as though I had made all this progress and I lost to, um, I don't you had pro points, and you couldn't. You got. You got. You lost, and you lost in the first rounds of the juniors. Yeah. and um, and I don't remember who I lost to at Eddie Hurt, but I remember who I, I lost to Orange Bowl, Christian Garin. That's who I lost to first round. Garin uh, is this is the um, Chilean, I think, kid yeah. who. Uh, I guess he's no longer a kid, but he won. He had an unbelievable. He finally broke out, yeah, and he had no. an unbelievable clay court season. Yeah, and honestly, I I think he's really good. Also, I always I've always thought that great forehand, unbelievable mover, good serve. Um, so I I got I lost him badly, but one and two, one and three, something like that. And it was so disheartening. And then and then afterwards, I went back down to Argentina, and I just think through everything through like. Maybe feeling that I wasn't really, you know, progressing as much as I thought, and I wasn't playing as well as I, or I wasn't as good as I thought I was, and maybe, maybe going to Argentina, I was making this sacrifice, quote unquote, whatever that is, you know, being away from friends, family, different culture, maybe not speaking the language as well as I, you know, would have liked to, and it kind of all imploded, and I said I lost. Uh, another first, I, I played another tournament, I lost first round, and I just told my dad, I said, Dad, I want to go home. I don't feel, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this professional tennis thing isn't for me. And he said, okay, that's fine. You know, I told Pablo, and he was saying, you know, he's really supportive. He said, look, I totally understand. It's hard. Dang, you had a freak out. I did have a freak out. You and had a freak out, I had man. a freak out. I thought, I thought, at that point, I thought it was over. <laughs> I'm going to go to college. And um, so Pablo told me and my dad, I said, you know, don't think of this as the end of your tennis career. I love you. I support you. And I love Pablo. I really do. I, I love, I, I've been so lucky in my tennis career to have got everybody. You had a freak out, man. But everybody I've ever interacted with tennis and has been part of my journey has been 100% supportive. And I'm really lucky in that. For, all the way from my parents, coaches, physio trainers, they've all provided me with, with the best training and support that you could possibly receive. But to go back to it, so then Pablo said, you know, this isn't the end of your tennis journey. It will continue. Give it some time. Maybe you just need a break. So three months, I basically was not playing much tennis. You know, a couple times a week for an hour. And I was looking at schools. I was going to be a junior in high school. And then, fi and then finally I told my dad after three months, I said, you know, dad, I think I want to start playing because I felt lost in the whole scheme of the world, right? I didn't, I had this one huge driving ambition that all of a sudden evaporated and I was left with nothing. And so I needed something to kind of drive me and get me going again to kind of feel like I had a goal that I was pursuing. So then called up Alejandro Cohn, who I had been traveling with. I said, Ale, you know, I think I want to go to some tournaments over the summer, but no juniors. I'm just going to play some futures. I said, okay. So he's up and we're training for about a couple of weeks, and then we go to Turkey to play some futures, four. Uh, four. And I do fairly well. I, qual I qualified for all of them, and I win a couple of rounds in a couple of them. So I get like, so I have now like cumulatively like six points or seven points. And then I play some more futures in the United States, and I win a couple of matches. So now I'm ranked like a thousand in the in the world. And then at the end of the summer, I play Kalamazoo. And that was a huge, huge um, kind of breakthrough for me because it really lended myself a lot of confidence. I was 16, I was playing the 18s, and I ended up reaching the finals. 
finals of the um, 18 nationals. We talk a lot about Kalamazoo. Yeah. Um, you finaled it when you were 16. Yeah. Who'd you lose to in the final? Colin Altamirano. Who's 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 banging around on the tour now? Still, I think I think so. Yeah, he went to Virginia for a year or two. Couple oh, that's of years. right. And then college. And then I think you know he's he's playing professionally, and that's not the end. Kind of the end of the story of Kalamazoo. So, I didn't know this at the time, but I thought the winner obviously gets the U.S. Open main draw wild card, which is the goal. I lose, so I was kind of bummed. But I I was kind of bummed at the time. But they said, oh, you get a wild card in the qualifying U.S. Open, which I didn't know. I said, oh. Okay, okay, great, you know. The wild, wild card into qualies. Yeah, so I get, I go a couple days early, I, I play qualies, and I'm losing badly, I'm down like a set and 3-0, I come back and I win. And it was First round qualies. Qualies, I win, against Farouk Dustov, who actually ended up getting top 100 at a, a couple years later. So in the first round, and then second round, I'm again losing badly, I'm down like a set 4-1, 3-0, I ended up winning that match. So now I'm in the final round of quali- against Ilya Marchenko, actually, who, again, turned out to be top 100, top 60 player and has had some injuries, I guess. And um, Then final round, I'm playing Philip Pechner, and I get, destro- I get killed. He played a game that I had never, that I did not know what was coming, I'd never seen before. He sliced a lot, came to net, served really well, and I lose 1-0. But I got to final round of qualies. That was a big deal to me. I thought, wow, I'm playing really great. And probably you're feeling the flavor of the whole situation. For sure. I had just had some great successes and that really... You're at the U.S. Open, man. I mean, yeah. that's like the... I mean, that's, 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 that's official. No, it was great. It was an unbelievable experience and that's kind of what reignited my... And, that, and then you, did you actually turn pro? Did you get paid no. on that? No, I I, I I turned pro the following the following summer. Following, yeah. Right out of the box, you had a lot of good results. I mm-hmm. remember talking about with you with guys, and everybody's very bullish on you. Um, the highest you've gotten now over the years, you've had great wins. Mm-hmm. You've had a lot of tough matches. You're 48. This is the best result you've gotten. Do you have a goal to get into the top 20? Do you have a goal? To, do you think you could be top 30? Do you think you could be top 10? Like, yeah. where's where's your do you think you could be one in the world? Like, do, where, like where do you peak out? Yeah, I mean, mind? I don't think my tennis journey story is over at 48. I think that, and I've, I've, I've felt this for the longest time, that if I could get my first serve percentage a little bit more consistent, get into 60%, then, because that's really what, ki- what, 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 what kills me. I, I think 2018, I finished something like 50 in the world or whatever, and I was 28 in return points one, and I was like 104th in service points one. So there was this huge discrepancy and a lot of it had to do with my first serve. And I, fi- I think if I can get my first serve percentage higher and I was making great headway before I got hurt, and that's that, this is why I think my injury is a bit of a blessing because I've been able to concentrate solely on my serve. And I think if I can do that, I don't see any reason why I couldn't be top 10, one in the world and be a really, really big issue for a lot of guys because I think I return really well. I think from the ground, I'm, 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 I got great ground strokes. So. I don't think that there's any reason why I couldn't be, you know, a, a top player um, getting my serve to where it, getting my serve better. Let's go, man. Let's go. So. Come on. That's, a, that's unbelievable. Yeah, no, I I, I, I truly I know think that. that. And also, let me just tell you, I, I know that, you know, the, you guys hired Taylor Dent. Yeah. He, um, and, and you know, I, you know if, if they hadn't slowed down the courts, Taylor Dent probably might have won. He might have won. For he sure. Might've, he might have given some people some real trouble. One of the best uh, best serving volleyers that really 
had the court slowed down to, on him in a way that you can't quantify what that success would be. How did he help you? Um, I, I know he came in to help you with your serve. Yeah. Did, did he help you? So when I was 17, I went to Taylor and just great relationship I have with Taylor. I, lo I love Taylor, I love Phil, I love his wife Jenny, I love his kids. Declan. Taylor Dent, prob I think he must have been a top 20, even though he must he have top I think he was top 20. Top yeah. 20, the son of Phil Dent, who yeah. was also a great player. I believe he won Grand Slams with Kevin Curran uh, at some point. Phil Dent, these are well-known names in tennis and... Uh, yeah, no, so... I worked Taylor for th almost three years, and I, en I enjoyed every second I spent on the court with Taylor. Um, I felt like I really grew a lot as a player, and also with Phil, you know, and, and Jenny and so forth, and I felt like I grew a lot as a, I lived with Taylor for two years. I spoke, we spoke tennis almost every, almost every day, and I really learned a lot, and my game drastically improved. And, you know, I think I owe a lot to them because I think that how my game kind of, how I play today certainly was 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 modeled in what we were working on then, and now a lot of it is more refinement, so to so to speak. So certainly, I I improved a lot, and I improved a, I've improved a lot under every coach I worked with. Now, the last I knew, you were, as I said earlier, you were with Jan Michael Gamble. I was um, with him up until the end of 2018, and then with my injury, I said, "Look, I can't really commit to anything." Right. And, That's what he told us. Yeah. yeah. So I. And it was true. I couldn't commit to anything no. for 2019. I said, look, if I feel better, let's think about getting back together. But for this moment, I can't commit to anything for 2019. And, and obviously still, I, I'm not, I can't commit to anything for, for 2019 or 2020 because I'm, I'm on the mend, you know. And you can't hold a coach hostage. Yeah, and I was, but for the three, turn, for the three or four turns I was back, I was working with Robbie Ginepri. Robbie Ginepri, another guy. American, yeah. Who are you friends with on tour? Who are like your? Who do you roll around with if you gonna go eat or? Um, I'm, pr I'm pretty res reserved. I, you know, obviously I, I'm friendly with, I'm, uh, friendly with everybody, but I wouldn't say, you know, I, and they would probably be honest too. You know, nobody would say that I'm their best friend, but I'm friendly with all of them. I'm jovial with all of them. They're all really great guys, really nice. Who do you? Who will you set up a practice with? Um, I, I practice with Taylor, Taylor Fritz a lot, um, Francis Tiafo a lot. Um. That's loud. <laughs> it's like some kind of landscaping situation. Should we just run with it? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you practice with Taylor, you practice with Tiafo. How are those guys? Good guys? They're great guys. I love, everybody loves Francis. Sounds like you're not on, uh, sounds like you're not on the tour to make friends. Look, I mean, I'm not there to make enemies either, you know. But but I think it's it's a it's a it's a tough environment because normally when you're in a work when you're in a work setting, uh, you're all part of the same company to achieve a similar goal, or there's you're not competing. You're certainly not competing against your the other employees, right? Where in tennis, you know, there there's and Ryan, obviously I practice a lot with Ryan Harrison and so forth and, uh -huh. and other guys. Every every everybody I've come in contact with, everybody on tour. Literally, I'm not saying this, I'm not blowing smoke. Everybody on tour is a great guy. Really, really nice. Yeah. Super friendly. Every, everybody I've, I've come in contact with. You never just like took a guy and just threw him up against the wall and said, man, you ever cheat me like that ever again? I, no. Nothing like that. No, and I've never seen anything like that Nothing either. like that. I've never seen anything like what that. About, no. yeah, what, about, what about Curious? Do you know him? 
I, I know Nick. I, th I think I think he's a really nice guy. And the, here's the thing about tennis is there's on-court persona and there's off-court persona. And I think what people forget, and I'm sure there's probably people who have seen me play and say, wow, Jared is the biggest, you know, SOB, what a, what a crazy guy, you know, biggest loser. And, and I, you know, and I've certainly blown up and had interactions or confrontations with certain people, but um, there's on-court and then there's off-court. On-court and at tournaments, you're in a workplace setting, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of expectations, you, you expect a lot of yourself, people expect a lot of yourself. And that can manifest itself sometimes in ugly and not gratifying ways. Well, listen, it's and, no joke, man. And you, you're fighting for everyone's fighting for their lives out there. Basically, yeah. getting lost, losing first round is ain't that good. No, it's not. <laughs> and and there, and that's a very real part of it. There's ups and downs and tense. There's the highest highs in tennis, and the next week you can have the lowest low. By the way, Roger Federer ain't ain't, ain't, ain't going to dinner with ten guys either. But, but Roger's really nice. Oh, yeah. Really nice but guy. But I'm saying everyone's got their whole yeah. thing. It's yeah, an individual everyone's got their sport. team. It's an individual sport. It's an individual thing. Yeah, you're not benefiting from another guy winning, which doesn't which doesn't mean I don't root for anybody to lose, but that's just the that's just the the truth about it. Let's move into our fourth set. This is what we call the ten ball scramble. This is not a deep dive. I say something and yeah. you just say what comes into your mind. Sure. Ready? Favorite tournament. Uh, U.S. Open, but I'm gonna get. I'm gonna give one that is that I really, I really like. Chengdu, the 250. Why? I don't know. I love the. I love the Asian swing. I really enjoy playing there. I love. I love that tournament for, for whatever reason. I really get excited when I go and play there. Chengdu, what's the best? Then you had a good. You've had some good results over there. Quarterfinals. Quarters. It was. It was a tough loss. I lost like seven six and a third to Eastman there too. Yeah. Dennis Eastman. Um, favorite court could be any court, anywhere. Favorite court. Favorite court. Uh. You know, of a court you get on, you just feel incredible. You like you just like I love this court the most. <laughs> um, so I really like playing on center court in uh, Shanghai. Actually, I like that court. Center court, cool, Shanghai. I it was a cool court. Uh, favorite city. New York. Not really, though. You're just saying that? No, I like it. I like that a lot. I like it a lot. You love New York. You don't like New York? I live there. Um, <laughs> favorite sport other than tennis? Golf. Are you a decent golfer? Eh, my, my game is getting better during my injury. <laughs> you get, yeah, your golf's improving while you can't play. Um, your best win? Um, golf fan. Where was that? U.S. Open. Beat David Goffin at the U.S. Open. I mean, that's pretty good. No, I was yeah, I was three three years ago. That was my first big win. Your worst loss. <sighs> I'm gonna say all losses. Every loss feels like the end one of the world. Out, no, no. I, well, actually, the 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 one that really sticks out that I thought was was totally devastating. That I was really really upset for for a time was um, Puyi at the U.S. Open two years ago. Luca Puyi. Yeah, that was that was that was devastating. That one I think about more than any other match. Why? Was again. I was down two sets to love, and um, I came back and got to a fifth. And I thought that there was no way I was going to lose. That there was just no way I was going to lose. Just I would have bet my life savings on my my entire life. I would have bet that I was going to win that match. I was so confident. And he came out and played an unbelievable fifth set, and that one that killed. He played great. He played. I didn't play bad. He played. He he won the match. He's a good player. He, I obviously a great player, but I was so positive I was going to win. Luca Pui. Um, college tennis. Yeah. 
What? What do you think? First thing that comes to your mind, college tennis. I, I mean, I, I can't really give a one-word answer to that, but I, I, I say I, I think that I think college tennis is, is great. I think that it's overpromoted. I think it's overpromoted. As what? As a, a pathway to-, to the professionals. I think that obviously people go to college and become good good professionals. Great players, Steve Johnson, John Isner. I would say though, uh, Kevin Anderson. I would say though, with John, you can't teach six ten. Kevin can't teach six eight. They have great serves. I think they're more the and Steve Johnson and Benjamin Becker and those types of guys. They're more the exception than the rule. You're not. You're not. You're not bullish on it as a pathway to the pros. I think. I think. And I think that. I. I personally kind of think it's a little bit disingenuous to to. to pass it off that way, personally. What do you think of some of the new rules, shot clock? I think if the fans enjoy it, it's a good thing. I think that the challenge system is amazing for tennis. I think it's the best challenge system in all sports. It's the only challenge system that no that no fan complains about. It gets the fan involved in it. So I am certainly not for, so I think at the, at the next gen where they called all the lines, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that the challenge system is great. Um, I think the new rules can be exciting. I think it's cool that they innovate. I personally like tennis how it is now. I think the shot clock is fine though. Let's move into our fifth and final set. We call it king of the court. Yeah. If you could make a change in tennis with just one wave of the wand, what would it be? Um, Eliminate the point system. Eliminate the... Eliminate the point system and go to a ranking system based more on an algorithmic formula rather than um, ranking system because I think it puts the tour in a really tough position. Explain why you think the point system is inadequate. So this is going to get pretty esoteric and so forth, but so the reason why I think the point system is is detrimental to to tennis is you have three different tiers of tournaments that all happen at the same time and it's very difficult for the ATP, for fans of tennis who follow the ATP schedule to understand what's going on, where the points are getting allocated, how they're getting allocated. No, you're right. No one and knows what that so is. You about defending points and all this other stuff. No one really understands it except like, people that are way on the inside. Who are way on the inside. So I think for the for the fan, they don't understand why are there three tournaments in one week of 250s and well, everybody... How about, how about why is Nick Kyrgios 30 in the world when every week he's... You know, in nightclubs, or you know, he won. He wins Acapulco, but then doesn't play for six months. Yeah. How does it work? We don't get it. So, I mean, I think that the point system is 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 really tough for tennis, and it puts tournaments at a disadvantage because fans feel as though, oh, a two fifty, that's not that important. When really, the bulk of tor- the bulk of players get a majority of their points from the two fifty circuit and so forth. But fans don't think that that's important because it's a lower level tournament. So my thing is increase the draw size, so no more thirty two draws. Just make every tournament like a ninety six draw, but maybe only have one tournament a week, only one tournament a week. So so the argument of having more tournaments, there's more jobs per week for players. Okay, so we'll create a huge draw size, one tournament a week. And the schedule now can become more easily followed and better for, for us from a scheduling standpoint and from a player standpoint. So instead of having the after Australia, 
the American hardcore, indoor hardcore with Long Island and, and, and um, Delray Beach, and then the clay court series in South America and Buenos Aires, and then Brazil, and then the Middle Eastern tournaments and some indoor European tournaments. Just, just we'll go from Australia. If the Middle East wants to have a series, three tournaments in the Middle East, and then if South America wants a series, three tournaments in South America, or however they want to schedule it out, but one tournament a week, a 96-player uh, draw, just make every tournament the same, and then the ranking system will be, be, be getting back to the ranking system. Now, how is it ranked? An algorithmic-type formula, such as a UTR, or, or however they want to do it. If the ATP wants to make its own proprietary ranking system, because I don't think, I don't, everybody would probably agree UTR ranking system isn't perfect, but maybe no ranking system is perfect. So then it's not based on some esoteric kind of formula that nobody really knows how people get points and how many points you get for a tournament, but everybody can understand, oh, head to head, how you did in a certain week, and kind of institute maybe more rules like they have in golf, where if you win the Masters, you get to play at Wimbledon for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that. I, think, I, I gotta be honest with you, I like everything you just said. I mean, I know it's a little... It would be really hard to implement. It's next to impossible to implement. But if you asked if I was king, that's what I would, that's what I would do. And I think that certain things that I've implemented kind of solves issues that have... So people say, oh, we just, just, take, just make less tournaments. Well, you can't because we need more jobs for more players. Okay, just expand the draw. So I feel as though that system kind of answers kind of answers some problem. And by the way, the lack of people in the stands the first four days of these tournaments is depressing. Yeah, I mean, I so that I think that I think that doing that, people would would be able to follow the schedule better and understand it more. That okay, the next stop is uh, X city instead of okay, there's a tournament in, in this, in X city, the tournament in Y city, and there's a tournament in Z city. How does that, we don't know which is important. I think just simplifying the whole thing would be better for the fan experience and for the player experience. Jared Donaldson breaking it down. Listen, my mother refers to all my like friends from home derogatorily. She calls us Rhode Island's finest, <laughs> but you truly are one of Rhode Island's finest. Um, it's not an easy thing to do what you did. And uh, thank you very much for breaking all this down and telling us about your tennis story. I think it's fascinating. Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so. it was cool. And I think it's cool what you guys do. and keep doing what you, what you guys do and I, I listen to it and I think it's great my man um, you, typically we say you are released but we're at your house so we'll uh, <laughs> you we'll are on, released yeah we'll be on our way thank you perfect want to thank everyone for listening please check out our patreon page at patreon.com slash under review tennis as we said earlier stretch Armstrong is a man with a plan to get the people moving on the dance floor. He also hits a mean, mean forehand. Check it at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. Huge thank you to Jared Donaldson and the Donaldson family. Thank you to the late and great Salty Brine for letting all the children know when school is out. And thank you to WPRO. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found everywhere you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At URWithCS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And now we just started a YouTube page. 
subscribe, and you can catch some clips from some of our interviews. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. No school, Foster Gloucester!